far are you willing to go to get what you want? For the hostage takers on this list, the answer is all the way to murder and mayhem. The demands from hostage takers can sometimes veer into the bizarre, like the group on our list that carried out a mass killing after police negotiators failed to procure a 1,000-year-old ginger plant they wanted. So how do you negotiate with armed terrorists to end a hostage crisis? Turns out, it's just as hard as it sounds. Number one on the list shows just how badly things can go when you try to resolve a harrowing hostage situation. Hey, all you weirdos. Welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week, we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast research gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 harrowing hostage situations. I always see TikTok videos, and this is so random, but about... I was wondering where this was going. Yeah, you're like, what? <laughs> but they're about what the different signs would do if they were being held hostage and being a Gemini. I've learned that they would probably just toss me out because I talk too much. Likely. But like bringing this to a real place in all reality, I just can't imagine what I would do in such a terrifying experience. I feel like I would like to think that I would go into some kind of survival mode and just think about the different things to leave behind for evidence or that I would be able to humanize myself enough to whoever was holding Mm -hmm. me hostage that they'd be convinced to let me go. But I just can't even imagine being in that situation in the first place. No, that's the thing. I completely agree. It's really one of those things that you just can't wrap your brain around. No. And I can't even imagine being in the situation at all. But like you, I would definitely hope to be able to, like, do something to help myself, leave some evidence, you know, humanize myself, like you said. But I don't know. I give a lot of credit to people who have the forethought to do that in those situations. Like, we've covered a ton of cases where people have been able to basically save themselves, make it out alive and go help other survivors just because of their own awareness, their own ability to just like calm down and really think about what they have to do. And to me, it's truly incredible. It really is. I was actually just thinking about all the cases that we've covered too. But man, this is going to be an intense episode. Oh yeah. See, I have number one and it's something we have discussed on the show before, but this time it's going to be at length. And it's really just a devastating story overall. Well, Elena has five hostage situations and so do I, but neither of us knows what the other person is bringing to this list. And just so you guys know, the content in this episode contains adult subject matter, including descriptions of violence and other sensitive material, and it's intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences, therefore discretion is advised. Let's start the countdown. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Ten. 
I'll start us off with number 10, the hostage crisis at Discovery Communications headquarters. On September 1st, 2010, a militant environmentalist stormed the lobby of the headquarters of the Discovery Channel. 43-year-old James Lee took three people hostage and demanded that the channel publish programming that highlighted the problem with overpopulation in the world. Employees at the building near Washington, D.C. received an email telling them to take cover in a locked office. The email read, We have reason to believe there is an armed gunman at one Discovery place. James, who ran a website protesting Discovery Channel's programming, entered the building's lobby waving a gun and wearing metallic canisters that were feared to be explosives. Can you imagine being in that building? No, and you're just going about your work day. You're just going the other to work. Thing, you know? He took a security guard and two Discovery Channel employees hostage. And as the situation developed, police learned that James had been arrested outside the building a couple years back. He had thrown $20,000 into the air near the building to draw a crowd to his version of an anti-corporate protest. That's one way to do it. I'm like, I feel like that's kind of just like going against what you're saying, but Maybe oh, a little. Okay. Now, he was convicted of disorderly conduct and sentenced to six months probation and a $500 fine. And before he stormed the office building, James had posted a manifesto on his website. He wrote that the world needs TV that develops solutions for man-made problems, quote, not stupefy the people into destroying the world. He also demanded the channel air programming against overpopulation. And during the four-hour standoff, police managed to evacuate 1,900 employees from the building, wow. as well as an on-site daycare center. That's horrifying. That's where it just gets, like, so crazy. The darkest of the dark. Exactly. Police monitored James and the hostages through the building's security cameras. Police say he, at one point, aimed his gun at one of the hostages, which spurred them to shoot and kill James. All three hostages made it out of the building safely. Oh my gosh. I For some reason, I've never heard of that one. I have not heard of that one either. And I'm like, of all the TV channels that you could really hate, you pick the Discovery well, Channel? I was going to say, that is like really far down on the list, it, I would say. That's what I would think. Come on. I can think of a few right off the top of my head. Right? Nine. Number nine on our countdown is The Kidnapping of Carrie Swenson. In July of 1984, biathlon champion Carrie Swenson went for a training run near Big Sky, Montana. When she still hadn't returned that evening, her family arranged a search party. Little did they know that the search party would become the target of Carrie's kidnappers. Carrie Swenson fell in love with skiing growing up in Montana. Her talent for the sport landed her a spot on the U.S. biathlon team in 1980, and four years later, competing in the first ever Women's Biathlon World Championship in France. Okay, Carrie. No big deal. In the summer of 1984, 22-year-old Carrie was in Montana training and working at a resort to earn extra money. On July 15th, Carrie went for a run. She was snatched mid-run by Don and Dan Nichols, a father and son, who had spent most of the past 12 years living off the grid in the mountains of Montana. Oh, that's already scary. Immediately, I am terrified. They dragged Carrie to their camp at gunpoint and chained her to a tree. Oh, my God. Don had apparently procured the chain in order to catch a wife for his 19-year-old son. 
Carrie spent the night chained to a tree. I'm sorry. What? And when I say catch, I mean catch like a wife. There are many other ways that you could go about getting a wife, sir, and this is not even close to being one of them. All I can think about is him going into like Home Depot and buying a chain to catch a human being for his 19-year-old son. Dude. I have no words. This is dark. When Carrie still hadn't come back from her run that evening, her family organized a search party, which was joined by two of her friends, Jim Schwab and Alan Goldstein. While searching nearly 18 hours after Carrie went missing, Jim suddenly heard a gunshot and a scream. He ran toward the voices and found the camp where Carrie was being held. Carrie was on the ground, bleeding from her chest, with Don and Dan standing over her. No. Don pointed his gun at Jim. Then, Alan showed up and tried to intervene. Don shot Alan in the face, killing him, as Jim managed to run away. How have I never heard this before? The father and son packed up their camp, unchained Carrie, and left her on the ground bleeding. Carrie lay on the ground injured for four hours before rescuers found her. She credits her biathlon training with helping her maintain steady, meditative breaths during that time. Wow. Which is incredible. She is a remarkable human being. Incredible. Don and Dan went on the run in the mountains of Montana and weren't caught by police for five months. And those must have been the scariest five months of that girl's entire life. Her entire family must have been on constant alert. Dan Nichols was convicted of kidnapping and assault and sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was released in 1991. Wow. Don Nichols was sentenced to 85 years in prison. He was released on parole after 32 years. He literally shot a man in the face. Yep. Carrie went on to compete again in several biathlon competitions and is even in the U.S. Biathlon Hall of Fame. Talk about inspirational. Like, We need a new word for inspirational when it comes to Carrie. It just needs to be called Carrie. It just goes to show you that you can do anything you put your mind to. She's incredible. To go on after everything that she had been through and just like thrive. Are you kidding me? Beyond thrive. Seriously. Get it, Carrie. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of the top 10 harrowing hostage situations is Gracia and Martin Burnham. Gracia and Martin Burnham went to the beautiful Dos Palmas Resort in the Western Philippines to celebrate their 18th wedding anniversary. But gunmen from the militant group Abu Sayyaf interrupted their vacation, forcing them onto a speedboat and into a year-long hostage crisis. A year? And these people just want to celebrate their anniversary. Oh my gosh. Gracia and Martin Burnham lived and worked in the Philippines for 17 years supporting Christian missionaries. In May of 2001, they decided to spend their wedding anniversary on an island in the Western Philippines. On May 27th, the couple woke up to banging on their hotel door. And before they could get to the door, gunmen burst in. They forced the couple out of the room and onto an awaiting speedboat. The gunmen were from the Abu Sayyaf group, a militant organization that U.S. officials say had ties to Al-Qaeda and operated in the southern region of the Philippines. They took 20 hostages from the resort that day, including Gracia, Martin, and one other American. Just at a resort. Literally, like just like the most relaxing place you're supposed to go. 
The hostages were taken by speedboat to another island and then marched deep into the jungles. A year of captivity followed. That's unthinkable. And they're just living in the jungle. During their captivity, they would spend days marching through the jungle in order to prevent being discovered. The captors chained hostages to trees at night in order to prevent them from escaping. During negotiations between Abu Sayyaf and Philippine authorities, they agreed to release several hostages for the reported amount of $1 million per hostage. Oh, just that? Casual. A few months into their captivity, a video interview with Gracia and Martin was released where they talked about being covered with blisters and sores from the jungle marches. Oh my goodness. In June of 2002, over a year after Gracia and Martin had been kidnapped, the Philippine army learned of the group's location. They invaded the Abu Sayyaf camp. Thank goodness. Seriously, and I just can't believe it took that long. A year. Yeah. Gracia was shot in the leg during the battle between police and the captors, but she did survive. Martin and one other hostage were killed during the raid. Oh, that's horrible. Gracia went on to write two books about the ordeal. 14 members of Abu Sayyaf were sentenced to life in prison for their part in the kidnapping and deaths from Dos Palmas. Seven. At number seven this week is the kidnapping of Mary and Beth Stoffer. On May 16, 1980, Mary Stoffer took her eight-year-old daughter Beth to get a haircut in St. Paul, Minnesota. On the way back to their car, they were snatched by a former student of Mary's, Ming Sen Shu, who held them hostage in his closet for 53 days. In his closet? An eight-year-old what? and her mother. Yeah. When Shu caught Mary and Beth outside the hair salon, he pulled a gun out and pointed it at young Beth. He forced them into the car and made Mary drive to a remote wooded area. Once they arrived, Shu tied up the mother and daughter and put them in the trunk. But a pair of neighborhood boys saw what was happening and approached the car. What little warriors. I know, right? Shu apparently panicked and threw one of the boys, six-year-old Jason Wilkman, into the trunk with Mary and Beth. Oh my God. He drove to another remote location and pulled Jason out of the trunk. When he came back a while later, Jason wasn't with him. No. It later was discovered that Shu had murdered him. A six-year-old boy. Oh, this is terrifying. Shu drove Mary and Beth to his home and put them in a closet with shackles and left. Mary's family called the police that evening to report her missing. Back at Shu's home, he pulled Mary out of the closet, turned on a video recorder, and began to, quote-unquote, interview her. What? Can you just imagine, like, how terrified and confused she was? Like, you just kidnapped me and now you're trying to interview me? Also, like, being a mother and having your eight-year-old daughter being part of this and not being able to change this situation for her right must have been the worst kind of torture i can ever imagine he told her that she had given him a b grade in high school and that it had destroyed his future what something that turned out to be a lie as she was a star student by the way and even if it wasn't a lie a b didn't destroy your future a b would never destroy your future well Shu then raped Mary, which oh. he did on a daily basis for the duration of her captivity. This poor woman. And her eight-year-old daughter is here. Exactly. Shu tortured Beth as well, 
covering her in a plastic bag in order to almost suffocate her and sometimes leaving her in a box in his van for hours at a time. What the? Oh. Although he loosened some control over the pair, he made it known that if one of them escaped, the other one would be killed. And this is a mother and daughter. You must be thinking, at least I would be thinking as a mother, like, do I try to let Beth escape? Right. And then he can just murder me? Yeah. Like, at least she gets to go. But like, what a decision. That's a mama right there. One day while she was at work, Mary figured out how to unhinge the closet door they were tied to. Yes. They quickly escaped and called the police. The police came and brought them to the station, still chained to each other with wires and bicycle locks. The FBI arrested Shew at his work shortly thereafter. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 30 years. Okay, I'm it glad. Have been no chance of parole forever. Forever, yeah. I'm glad that he was arrested. But can we just back up a second? Arrested at work. Yep. So this man was going to work with knowing this, in his mind his that he had a mother and daughter pair locked in his closet that as he's hostages. Been, he's been torturing and raping. And he's just going about his day. Yeah. What is wrong with people? Humans are scary. Well, Mary testified against Shu during the trial for Jason's murder, but Shu had smuggled a knife into the courtroom. What? He attacked Mary before he was tackled by police. Mary ended up with a cut on her face that required 62 stitches. Oh my God. So she is now saved in protective custody and he still goes after her. That is insane. In 62 stitches? That's not a cut. That's a gash. Well, and luckily, Shu was found guilty of kidnapping and sentenced to 30 years. He was also found guilty of murdering little Jason and was sentenced separately to 40 years. Good. He was up for parole in 2010. Why? But luckily, a smart judge ruled that he would remain in prison for the rest of his disgusting, rotten life. I want to know who that judge is, and I want to send them flowers. For real. Wow. Six. Landing at number six is the Alta View Hospital hostage crisis. Richard Worthington was a father of eight who was mad that his wife had undergone a tubal ligation surgery following the birth of their last child. He was so mad that he stormed a hospital in an attempt to kill the doctor who performed the surgery. He never found the doctor, but he managed to kill a nurse and take a maternity ward hostage in the process. A maternity ward. Again. Late on the night of September 21st, 1991, Richard Worthington shot his way into Altaview Hospital outside of Salt Lake City. He was in a rage, shouting for the doctor who had performed tubal ligation on his wife two years prior. That's delayed. Very delayed. According to Richard, the surgery was done without his or his wife's consent. He also apparently accused the doctors involved of raping his wife. That's a lot. I feel like that's not true. He was also reportedly having marital problems, and his wife asked for a divorce a few hours before he stormed the hospital. There it is. At the hospital, Richard grabbed two hospital staffers and began walking them at gunpoint to his car, which police say had a bomb inside. My goodness. A police officer yelled at him to freeze. Richard shot and killed one of the staffers, a young nurse, and it was her first week on the job. Her first week? Her first week, yep. He took the other person and went back inside the hospital to the maternity ward. Inside the maternity ward, he held eight people hostage, including three newborn babies. Oh, that 
I hope he I hope he goes to prison forever Ooh. and ever. The hostages, some of which had just given birth, oh, come on, man, were forced to trash a doctor's office, build a barricade, and arrange Richard's homemade bombs. Stop. So some of these women who had literally just created life had to arrange a man's bombs. And let me just tell you, I was going to say, go who's ahead. Given birth, you know. Even a week after, you still feel like it's just happened. Yeah. You are not, you're barely able to walk around correctly. So this is a full-blown nightmare to me. It is. you took newborn babies hostages? Yeah, that is. What? I don't even think there's words for how disgusting that is. One of the hostage negotiators said of Richard, quote, he'd go from A to Z very quickly. One minute, he'd be emotional talking about one of his kids. And the next, he'd be back ordering, threatening to blow people up. Richard's wife and his church's bishop came to the hospital to help police with negotiations. He eventually agreed to surrender if he could speak with both of them. 18 hours after the hostage crisis began, Richard surrendered to police and was taken into custody. He eventually pleaded guilty to one count of felony murder, eight counts of aggravated kidnapping, and one of aggravated burglary. He was sentenced to 35 years to life. Let's go with the life on yeah, that one. Let's go with the latter there. Shortly after, Richard said he wanted to change pleas. His attorney said that Richard had bipolar disorder and was not competent when he had pled guilty. But in 1993, before he could change pleas, Richard took his own life in his prison cell. I wanted him to have to deal with it forever. I know, me too. He deserved to. Oh, man. That... Richard Worthington, my goodness. To take a baby, or excuse me, newborns. multiple babies, newborns, hostage. And, and women who have just given birth. Yeah, the last two that we just did were so much. We're halfway through. How is that? How? That's just the beginning, everybody. Guys, this is wild. I did not see this one coming. No, I me really either. Didn't. I thought this was going to be like hostage. Whenever you think of hostage negotiations, you're like, wow, like the negotiation part. That's interesting. Right. I did not think of how horrifying the actual hostage situation part is. Yeah, it's a lot. My goodness. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the podcast series Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican, to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD, and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of harrowing hostage situations. Starting off the second half of our list is the Good Boys Siege. 
Loy Pham and Long Nguyen were brothers in their late teens and early 20s who belonged to a gang of young immigrants in Sacramento known for violence and robberies. Along with a friend, the three brothers held a group of 38 shoppers and workers hostage at a Good Guys electronics store for close to eight hours. Oh, my God. In 1991, when four men with ski masks pulled out guns in the middle of the store, people assumed it was a robbery. Yep. That's a good assumption. But then they started rounding up people. According to one former hostage, the men told them, quote, We need to talk to the president. We're holding you guys hostage and we have all these demands. They tied up the hostages, who could be seen through the store's front window where police and news cameras watched the situation unfold. That must have been horrific for the people inside to just see help that close oh, to that's them. the thing. It's feeling completely helpless from inside, being like, you're right there. Like, please And help I can't me. get to you, but then feeling completely helpless on the outside, being like, you're right there and I yes. can't get to you. One woman was five months pregnant. She later recalled going into labor during the crisis and losing her pregnancy. Oh, that is horrific. I'm My so goodness. sorry for that woman. The gunmen spoke to police negotiators, but their demands were erratic. At different points, they demanded bulletproof vests, $4 million, a helicopter, a thousand-year-old ginger plant, and a flight to Thailand to help fight the Viet Cong. Yeah, guys, we can get you all of that within like 10 minutes. You gotta, totally. You got to pick like half of one of those. Hostage negotiators said the young men who had emigrated from Vietnam with their families as children were unhappy in the U.S. They couldn't find jobs, and the youngest brother was expelled from school after trying to set fire to the building. Yeah, if you don't set fire to a building, you won't actually get expelled from school. Yeah, I love how they're like, you know, it's like a bummer that I tried to commit arson and I got in trouble for it. Yeah, that's a bummer. That's usually how that goes. Yeah, that's not cool. A few hours into the crisis, negotiators brought the gunman one bulletproof vest in exchange for the release of a female hostage and two children. Later on, three more children and two more women were released. I can't believe how many children were in there. I know. Good Guys was an electronics store with televisions for sale, which the gunmen turned on in order to watch themselves on the news. I genuinely cannot. As night fell, the gunmen became desperate. One hostage was shot in the leg and forced to crawl outside with ransom instructions for the police. Oh. A police sniper thought he had a clear shot on one of the gunmen. He fired at the window, shattering the glass as other policemen dropped in from the store's ceiling. That's like a movie. That's literally a movie. The gunman ran behind the hostages, shooting them as they went. When it was all over, three hostages were killed, along with three of the gunmen. Fourteen hostages were wounded. Wow. Loy Nguyen was the only one of the gunmen to survive. He was sentenced to 41 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. See, I want to see more of that on this list. I want to give I all say, of these people like 82 life sentences to be served consecutively. Give me a few more of those 41-year life sentences consecutively. Yes, and no, I, that's what I want. And no possibility of parole. Yeah, let's throw that parole thing like right out the window with exactly. all these. Just like they threw a hostage out the window exactly. after they had shot them in the leg. Seriously. Four. Landing at number four this week is the Manila hostage crisis. In August of 2010, a bus full of tourists from Hong Kong was driving in downtown Manila in the Philippines. At one of the group's last stops in the city, a man in a police uniform carrying a gun entered the bus. 
The following 12 hours turned into a terrifying hostage crisis that ended in a massacre. Rolando Mendoza was a former police officer in Manila who had been honored as one of the top 10 police officers in the Philippines. But then he was found guilty of extortion and accused of robbery and fired from the force. Rolando entered the bus filled with tourists in downtown Manila and reportedly told the passengers, sorry, you're now all my hostages. That's a nightmare. Like a random guy just gets on the bus and says that to you. The driver navigated the bus to a famous park in Manila, after which he was handcuffed to the steering wheel. Rolando posted his demands on the front window of the bus. One of the demands was that the police force rehire him immediately. That's probably not going to work. Like, sir, you really thought that was going to work. I'm just going to take all these people hostage and then I get to be a police officer Make me a cop again. I'm going to break several laws in order to become a police officer. Makes sense. Cool. Another poster was pasted to the bus door that read, Big mistake to correct a big wrong decision, referring to Rolando's firing. Okay. Like, no. No. This isn't helping. In a move that was later criticized, the police rejected his demand to let him back into the police force, saying it would set a bad precedent. I feel like they could have just written him some kind of letter and said, like, you're reinstated and then been like, oh, actually, not so much. You're actually arrested. Well, that's the thing. It's like, what exactly was the thought process like behind actually saying no to him? Right. Like, you aren't like being tough guys by saying no to him. No. Just go, sure, buddy. Yep. Here's a letter. You're a police officer again. Congrats. Back on the force. Like, let's go out for coffee. Yes. And then... As soon as he comes out, you're like, you're arrested now. And I'm pretty sure you knew that. Yeah. Like, takesies, backsies are involved here. That's so wild that they, like, stuck to that. That's I'm also weird. like, that seems like a very easy decision to make. That's the thing. I'm like, am I missing something? We must be. Now, the area where the bus was parked had meanwhile turned into a media circus. Like the good guy's hostage crisis, the bus had a TV where Rolando watched live news coverage of the event. At first, hostage negotiators seemed to be going well. Every hour, Rolando released a few hostages, including children and the elderly, in exchange for food and gas. But as night fell, he apparently became angry. He had seen on the news that police arrested his brother, who had tried to approach the bus with a gun during the standoff. As Rolando was on the phone with a reporter, he said if the police drove off with his brother, he would kill everyone. The reporter realized the police weren't hearing Rolando's demands. He ran over to them to tell them, but it was too late. Close to 12 hours into the standoff, Rolando started shooting the passengers one by one. The police moved in and tried to break into the bus through the glass, but Rolando shot at the officers, hitting one. Police threw tear gas into the bus, which forced Rolando out of the bus, luckily. He was shot and killed by police as he approached the door to exit. In the end, eight tourists were killed by Rolando. Wow. The Philippine government was panned by many, including the government in Hong Kong, for the way the crisis was handled. That is insanely wild. It's true, though. I understand why they were, like... Criticizing. Exactly. Like, criticized so heavily because this could have gone a complete opposite way if you had just sat there and lied to him and been like, oh, yeah, totally, we'll rehire you. Just placate him. Isn't that part of what hostage negotiating is? I thought that that was, like, a very large part of it. Is you're, like, playing to what... you. You don't want to give them all the power, but you want to let them believe they have some of the power. Exactly. Like, I think that's part of it, at least. I mean, I'm not a hostage negotiator, but. But wow, that's horrifying. It is. These are just tourists. Right. Just it's so sad. All of these are just people going about their days. Yeah. And have no idea what's happening.
three. Number three on our countdown of harrowing hostage situations is the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. Patty Hearst was born into the Hearst media empire started by her grandfather. Her family's wealth made her the perfect target for the Symbionese Liberation Army, which kidnapped her as part of their stated goal of ending racism, prisons, and other capitalist institutions. In 1974, 19-year-old Patty Hearst was living in Berkeley, California and studying art history. On February 4, 1974, members of the Symbionese Liberation Army, or the SLA, burst into her apartment and kidnapped her. On February 12th, the SLA released a recording of Patty telling her parents, quote, I just hope you'll do what they say. Oh, imagine hearing your child no. say that. The SLA demanded that the hearse work to distribute food to the poor. In one message they sent to Patty's parents, the SLA leader said, quote, I am quite willing to carry out the execution of your daughter to save the life of starving men, women, and children of every race. That's a nightmare to hear. That truly is. According to Patty, she was kept in a closet for the first 57 days of her captivity. During that time, she says she was abused and raped. What happened next has been analyzed and debated by experts and citizens alike. Patty says she was given an option, join the SLA or be killed. She appeared to join the group and took on a new name, Tanya. An SLA video was released showing Patty with a machine gun in front of the SLA flag. She said she has, quote, chosen to stay and fight for, quote, the freedom of all oppressed people. A few months after her kidnapping, the SLA robbed a bank in San Francisco. Surveillance footage from the scene showed Patty holding a gun. Two bystanders were shot in the incident, and the police released wanted posters for Patty and the rest of the SLA. Then in May of 1974, Patty showed up in Los Angeles. She fired a rifle outside of a sporting goods store in the process of trying to free an SLA member who had been detained for shoplifting. This is so wild. This really is. It just took a huge like it, spin there. It, it goes and goes and you're like, what? What is happening? I'm getting whiplash over here. The police eventually traced the SLA members to a house in Los Angeles. They surrounded the home and the shootout began. In the middle of the fray, the house went up in flames. Oh my gosh. Six SLA members died in the fire, but it turned out that Patty wasn't at the house. Patty was captured by police in San Francisco on September 18, 1975. She claimed to have been brainwashed by the SLA, but she was still convicted for armed bank robbery and sentenced to seven years in prison. Hmm. She only served two years of her sentence before it was commuted by then-President Jimmy Carter. President Bill Clinton eventually granted her a full pardon before leaving office in January 2001. That is such a tricky situation because I could it totally is. see that she was brainwashed, most likely. Well, that's the thing, because she was a hostage for a long time. And her option was join us or we kill you. And I mean, none of us can say what we would do in that situation. I've never had the choice of do this or I kill you. Right. And then the other thing is that weirdly, like these people are incredibly violent, but it seems like their mission is in good taste. Like there's like, some kind of mission in there that you're like, yeah, right. You should feed like the poor and end racism. But you shouldn't take a hostage to do so. Well, like, I don't know if this is the way to go about it. Right. And also it's just... This is, again, like we said, this wasn't like a week of her being a hostage. This was months. She was broken of her down. Being a hostage. 
it can absolutely happen that you can be brainwashed when right. your 24-7 is you being in this harrowing situation Tortured. and being fed all that information. Right. And I mean, for the first, like, what, two months she was in a closet? Yeah. That'll change your mind. If that's the truth, then, yeah, I would say there's definitely some brainwashing and trauma involved in all of this. Yeah. I've obviously heard of that before, but I this is something I definitely need to look a little more into. Yeah. I definitely want to look into it more. Form a better opinion. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I knew the Patty Hearst story, but like, wow. But I didn't know it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I still don't know it, but yeah. Whew. A lot of these are ending like really tragically, too. They well, are. We have not come across one that like everything was great and everybody was released. I know. Can we do a countdown where it's all like happy outcomes? A countdown of top 10 hostage situations where everything was fine at the end. Yeah. That's, that's our next one. That's the working title. Woof. This one's tough. Oh, well, we got two left, y'all. And number one, let me tell ya. And number two, let me tell ya. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of harrowing hostage situations. At number two is the Moscow theater hostage crisis. On October 23, 2002, around 50 Chechen rebels stormed a theater in Moscow in the middle of a production of a sold-out musical. They took around 900 audience members hostage and demanded the withdrawal of Russian troops from Chechnya. The Russian response to the crisis ended up leaving over 100 hostages dead. My goodness. At the start of the second act of a musical at the Dubrovka Theater in Moscow, gunmen stormed the stage and fired shots into the air. They began to booby trap the theater and plant rebels with explosives strapped to them in strategic locations. They told the audience, now they're hostages, that if Russia didn't withdraw from Chechnya, they would blow the entire theater up. Ooh. Chechnya has been fighting for their independence for many years. After the fall of the Soviet Union, fighting intensified between Russia and Chechnya, with Chechen rebels carrying out multiple terror attacks against Russia. At first, the hostage takers released some children, pregnant women, and Muslims. Many of the remaining hostages had cell phones, which they used to call friends, family, and Ugh. the news media to reiterate the hostage takers' demands. That's so sad. Three days into hostage negotiations, Russian troops decided to try a different tactic. They pumped the building full of a gas that was later believed to be a synthetic form of fentanyl. Oh. Yeah. The gas caused people in the building to fall asleep quickly. One former hostage remembered an odd smell in the air. She said, quote, The tensions of the last three days seemed to slip away. We were all very sleepy. Once the gas set in, Russian troops entered the building, killed the gunmen, and began piling unconscious people and dead bodies onto the steps outside. Oh, my, are you making like piles? Like you're like unconscious, dead. Like, right. how do you even tell? Like, that's hard. That's the other thing. Like, what if somebody has like oh a very God. faint pulse and they're put in the wrong that's area? Like, oh, my goodness. Paramedics said they were also not told what kind of gas had been used in the operation, so they didn't have the proper antidote to treat patients. My goodness. When it was all over, 130 hostages were killed during the rescue wow. mission. 
Russian authorities claimed afterwards that the gas they used was non-lethal and that everyone who died had pre-existing conditions. Oh, what a coincidence. I am so sure. One mother who lost her son in the raid said that he was young and healthy. She said, quote, I was told that he died because his kidneys and liver were chronically diseased and that they had failed. There was not an ounce of truth in this. Even the children who died were listed as having had serious chronic illnesses. Yeah, that's a lot of coincidence. The fact that they just thought people would be happy with that answer, too. Yeah, and I on. understand, like, you had to figure out a way to get in there, but, but like, come on. maybe you could have thought about it a little bit more. No individual Russian authorities were held responsible for the botched rescue. Yeah. And in 2011, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that Russia had violated the hostages' basic right to life during the rescue operation. When you said what gas they blew it there, it's like, uh, what? Right. How? Why? And, like, why do you have that? There's no other options here? There had None? to have been something. Come on. What about tear gas, Wild. you know? And just anything anything else. Ooh. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 harrowing hostage situations, the Munich Olympics hostage crisis. You may remember this tragedy from our countdown of the top Olympic crimes and scandals. At the 1972 Summer Olympics in Munich, West Germany, Palestinian militants broke into the Israeli housing area, killing two Israeli athletes and taking nine people hostage. The standoff that followed was watched around the world. Around 4.30 in the morning on September 5th, 1972, eight masked Palestinian terrorists from the militant group Black September climbed the fence surrounding the Olympic Village. They broke into the Israeli living quarters and killed a wrestling coach and an Israeli weightlifter. They took nine other Israeli Olympic team members hostage. The group demanded the release of over 200 Palestinian prisoners in Israel, as well as a plane to fly them to a neutral location in the Middle East. Around 10 p.m. that night, the terrorists believed their demands were being met and they were flown with the hostages by helicopter to a West German airfield. German police, meanwhile, had planned an ambush and lined up snipers in the area, but the rescue mission failed miserably. The terrorists realized they'd been led on when they entered an empty jetliner. The police fired at them and the terrorists fired back, killing one officer. Then the terrorists threw a hand grenade into the helicopter with the Israeli hostages, followed by a spray of gunfire, killing all but one of them, who also later died from smoke suffocation before rescuers could reach him. Oh, this is devastating. It is truly the most brutal thing I've ever heard. It really is. When it was all over, five of the hostage takers were killed and three were captured. The Olympic Games continued after a 24-hour suspension. That, to me, and I knew that. The fact, craziest part of the case. I think that's so messed up. Less than two months after the massacre of Israelis in Munich, Black September terrorists hijacked a plane from Damascus, Syria, to Frankfurt, Germany. They secured the release of the three terrorists from Munich who were loaded into their plane. The plane was then flown to Libya, where they, the passengers and crew, were released. Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir authorized a covert assassination plan called the, quote, Operation Wrath of God, where they systematically killed members of Black September. 
Steven Spielberg later dramatized the Wrath of God mission in his 2005 movie, Munich. Oof. That Munich massacre, it every time I hear that case. Oh yeah. Every time I it's hear it. It's just as shocking, if not more every time. And each step of it is crazier and crazier. Like the fact that they were able to get into the Olympic Village in the first place. Yeah, that in and of itself. The fact that, you know, the coach and the wrestler, like they tried to stop them. Right. They were killed in the process. All the negotiation that followed that, like that ambush that just turned the complete other way. Right. Flipped right around on them. And then just the amount of deaths and the amount of people that were hurt in this whole situation. It's wild on this list how many missteps were taken during the negotiations yeah. process. I had no idea that so many of these were the result of a lot of weird planning right. on the side of law enforcement here. But then on the other side, can you imagine having to plan in the moment like that? That's the thing. That's exactly it. It's all like split second like just decision making so in a way i do feel for the people who are in the process of negotiating this and they do sometimes fail because can you don't know what you would do you yeah. know you're just but trying your them, best some of them i'm like that yeah was, that was a dumb thought yeah something like, <laughs> like that come on. like the one where they were like oh yeah like you can't have your job back yeah come on just give that's the an job easy back. peasy lemon squeezy one to do you just say sure you're a cop again my thoughts exactly Bully for you and you throw him a sheriff's badge and be like you're out catch yeah, yeah. the end but, but that definitely was number one yeah for sure that's the one I actually had in my mind before I was reading my side. So when I saw it as number one, I was like, yeah, yep, exactly. that, that belongs there. I can't think of any that were left off, but I don't know the last time I brushed up on my hostage negotiations That's studies. what I got to say. I'm sure there are like a million more because we could never fit them all in a top 10 list. Just one. We right. probably do like 100 of these. Yeah. But I am not really up on a lot of hostage negotiations. Neither am I. So I'll have to look into it. Yeah. Let's definitely the next uh, installment do like happy ending hostage negotiations. But you know what? Great job to the podcast research gods on this one because these were rough. They were. Thank you for looking into those. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which we hope you do, you made it this far, you can follow us, our show, Morbid, on Instagram at Morbid Podcast and on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo, with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Fact-checking by Lori Siegel. Research by Jay Cahio. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, Gemma Waters, Jonathan Ratliff, and Tracy Levy. It's associate produced by Gitu Mayra, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. 